And uh, we read this uh, last week, but it's kind of a good place to begin this week. The Bible says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so uh, we've talked about some of the ways that people try to make evolution and the Bible come into agreement. They talk about the day-age issue where they think that the days of creation in Genesis are actually periods of time rather than 24-hour periods. And we've talked about the fact that uh, the writer of Genesis, which was uh, the Holy Spirit ultimately, but Moses uh, was the human instrument uh, used to pin that, that, um, that the reference that was given in each of those instances was a very specific instance of a 24-hour day. And the fact that he followed it up with not just the first day or the second day, but evening and morning were the first day. Evening and morning were the second day. And so on. So we know because of the uh, how specific it was written that it's not dealing with um, thousands of years or, or periods of time or eras of time, but it's dealing with a 24-hour period. We also found out that the Bible teaches that death came by sin, that until there was sin in this world, there was no death, and that Adam and Eve were created in the beginning, and they are the ones that first sinned. And if that's the case, then that had to happen in the beginning. And so again, we know these things to be true. We spent some time last week dealing with a passage from Romans chapter 5 that talks about that, and the fact that if uh, if death came by sin, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, um, if, that, if that verse is taken to its full thought process, then evolution, or the belief of evolution, negates the whole reason that the Lord Jesus Christ came. Because if, if evolution is true, then obviously death was before sin. Obviously, because there's fossils and the evolutionists say that the dinosaurs died long before man was ever even here. And so if, if death is not the penalty of sin, then there's no need of salvation. And if there's no need of salvation, then the Lord Jesus Christ came in vain, didn't He? He died in vain. And so again, a belief in evolution is not compatible with a biblical worldview. We either believe the Bible for what it says, or, or we don't believe it for what it says. It was built, and, or it was created in six days, and the Bible says on the seventh day, God rested. That means that the dinosaurs were created the same time man was. And one of the biggest uh, lies in our textbooks that begin to undermine the faith of our young people in uh, grades as low as first grade is they uh, open their textbooks, and oftentimes it begins with billions of years ago. Billions of years ago. And they'll, they'll talk about dinosaurs and how they went extinct and uh, how that man didn't come along till 57 uh, billion year or million years after the dinosaurs went extinct, and uh, so we spent a little bit of time last week teaching uh, a little bit about some of this and um, the stories about uh, and legends that are out there about dinosaurs that were given in the old old days and even pre uh, pre New Testament. And Brother Keith's getting ready to play a video. That's why it's dinging at us there uh, in just a moment. Uh, but they weren't called dinosaurs. And that's why a lot of people say, well, we don't have any record of dinosaurs until beyond a certain time. But the word dinosaur was not coined until 1842. So any of your ancient writings did not refer to them as dinosaurs. They referred to them as dragons 
Um, dragon was the word that was used up until uh, 1842. And that's why the word dinosaur is not found in your King James Bible, because our King James Bible was done in what year? Anybody remember? 1611. The word didn't even exist until 1842, so they would not have used that word. But they did use some words. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Job. And uh, there are some things that we do find in Scripture, quite clearly in Scripture, in fact, uh, regarding um, creation and, and this idea of dinosaurs uh, happening at the same time. And let me just make sure i got the right page here for this. Yes, I do. Okay. Let's turn to uh, Job chapter 40. So Job is a, a very rich man. He's a very wealthy man. He's a very righteous man. God had blessed him in his life. He had a lot of kids. He had a lot of animals. And uh, God uh, was talking with uh, Satan one day, and uh, he said, Hast thou considered my servant Job? And Satan basically said, Well, sure, he's going to worship you because you've blessed his life so well. And God said, Okay, I'll tell you what, you can try him. You can test him. You can touch anything except for his own life. And so Satan did all this stuff to him, caused him to lose his children, caused him to lose all of his cattle and a lot of his servants. And um, his wife came to him and uh, was very critical, and he, he ended up losing his wife in the process of this, and she uh, was blaming him and blaming God. His four friends, quote-unquote, came to him, and a large portion of the book of Job is his friends trying to tell him he needs to repent and find out what sin he had done to cause this catastrophic event uh, to happen to him. And the Bible says that in all of this, Job, Job didn't sin. Uh, he gave God the glory. In fact, he made this statement. He said, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What an attitude. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could have that kind of attitude about life? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Paul said it this way. He said, I'm both, I know how to be both abased and how to abound in all things. And, and uh, he talked about the fact that he had had times where his life was prosperous. There were times where he was in perils in the deep and in life-threatening situations and hunger and thirst. And, uh, and he says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be what? Content. Content. In other words, he was saying almost what Job said. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, all through all of this, Job does not sin. But Job does ask God why. Now, by the way, I don't think it's wrong for us to ask God why. In fact, if we don't understand why it's going on, I think it's very good for us to ask the Lord why. Because it could be, God does sometimes chasten us, it could be, that He is chastening us, and we may not understand that He is, and we need to ask Him and find out, Lord, if you're chastening me, show it. Make it apparent to me. Let me know this. It may be that He is trying your faith, and if so, you need to know this. And it's okay to ask God why. I don't think we need to judge God's reasons when He lets us know it. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking why. But Job asked God why all this was happening. And God asks him 47 different questions. And not one of them did Job answer. Because they weren't the kind of questions you answer. Um, those of you that are parents know what I'm talking about. Uh, Mike, I've got two teenage kids living at home. and uh, Isn't it amazing how much more expensive they get as they get older? And uh, they live at home. And every once in a while, 
uh, they may ask me why, or they may say, uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to go do this, and I'll say, uh, no, that's not, that's not something you're going to be a part of. And, uh, and the reason is, I'll say something like this sometimes. I'll be like, uh, do you pay for the house? Do you pay for the food that you eat? Do you pay for your clothes? And uh, I heard one fellow say it this way. In fact, it might have even been this guy here. I was listening to so many things. I can't remember which one said it this way. It might have been Kent Hovind that said it. But he said it's kind of. He says the golden rule: he who has the gold makes the rules, kind of thing, uh, when it comes to your children. So we know what it's like as a parent sometimes asking our kids questions that we don't expect them to answer, but we're trying to adjust their attitude. We're trying to make sure that they understand uh, what's going on. And this is what God does. He asked Job some of these questions. And let me get to the right chapter. Job chapter 40, um, God begins to ask these questions. And uh, let's read down through it. We got to some of it last week. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What uh, shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. In other words, I shouldn't ask, Lord. I, I, I understand what you're saying. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind, and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me, Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me, thou, that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like Him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellence, and array thyself with glory and beauty. In other words, he's saying... You can't do that, but I can. And uh, again, Job's seeing these things. He says, Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold every one that is proud and abase him. Look on every one that is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together, and bind their faces in secret. Then will I confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. In other words, Job, you don't have the power to do these types of things that I can do. Behold now behemoth. This is an interesting word. Behemoth, which I made with thee. That's an interesting phrase too, isn't it? Because if we show that behemoth is referring to a dinosaur, God says, which I made with thee. In other words, he was in existence the same time Job was. In fact, God told him to behold him, which means that Job would have had to be able to see him. He says, Behold now, behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Lo now, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. I heard somebody say, well, this is referring to uh, uh, an elephant, because he's big, he's got a big belly, he's got big legs. But have you ever seen an elephant's tail? It doesn't give you a mindset of it moving like a cedar. Uh, It's a little bitty thing. Uh, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong as pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword and approach. Uh, or he that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. So obviously he has some kind of a, uh, a, a type of a tough skin and, and iron bones. He's very tough, and he's the chief of God's ways. Surely. The mountains bring him bring forth uh, food where all the beasts of the field play. He lieth in the shady trees, in the covert. Now I want you to notice these words. In the reed, we know what reeds are. 
and fens. Fens is an interesting word. It's an old English word. We don't use it much today anymore. But it always dealt with a marshy or swampy type land. Uh, so he's talking about this, this creature, this behemoth, that is the chief of God's ways that eats uh, the plants and the vegetation, that he, he resides in these shady places, uh, in the reeds and the fins, this, this marshland type of a thing. The Bible says the shady trees cover him with their shallow. Uh, the willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. He taketh it with his eyes, his nose pierceth through snares. And so this thing is a monstrous beast. He's able to drink up, and the way God words it to Job, he's able to drink up rivers. He's so big. Uh, He's a large animal. He says, Canst thou draw out, notice this, Leviathan. Now here's another one. So one of them we have called Behemoth. And he's large. He's got a big belly. He's got uh, legs like a trunk. He's got a tail that's like a cedar. He drinks up the rivers. The mountains are used for his uh, food. I mean, this is a large... He's trying to indicate the massive size of this animal. Now, we get to verse chapter 41. He uses a different creature. He says, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook? Well, just, just right off the bat, you kind of think, well, maybe this one might live in the water because he's trying to draw him out with a hook, or his tongue with a cord, which thou lettest down. Canst thou put a hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with the thorn? Will he make supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons, or his head with fish spears? Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? In other words, this thing just almost can't even be defeated. I mean, it's just just massive, strong being. None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? In other words, God was saying, I made these things. Job, you can't even stand before them. But I'm the one that made them. I'm the one that put them in there. Who hath prevented me that I should repay him whatsoever is under the whole of heaven? Under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts nor his power nor his comely proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales, that's an interesting phrase, are his pride shut up together as with the closed seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered by his kneesings. Now, we talked about this word last week. This is a word that prior to the King James Version was not in existence in the English language. The King James translators actually coined this word because they did not have a good English word for what this was. He describes what it is. He says, By his kneesings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning, Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. 
out of his nostrils goeth forth smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. You say, Pastor, is that talking about a fire-breathing dragon? Yes, it is. You would think that if there were such things in the past, and if man lived at the same time and saw these creatures, you would think that they would make up stories about them and tell people about them. In fact, you might even start having legends of heroes that went out to slay the dragon that was terrorizing the village. These fire-breathing dragons. He says, And his breath kindleth coals, and the flame goeth out of his mouth, and his neck remaineth strength, in his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone. He is hard as a piece of the nether millstone. When he raiseth himself up, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold. The spear, the dart, or the habergeon, he esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He sharpeneth his sharp pointed things upon the mire. So obviously he has some sort of spikes or things that are sharp about him. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. Do you know how many legends there are before the diesel ships that began to cross the oceans of sea monsters, sea beasts? Sailboats didn't make a whole lot of noise going through the water. They would stumble on these things from time to time. Now we got these big ships that they can hear them coming a mile away, and obviously I don't think they come near to them. But they caused the deep to boil. I think there are classics in literature regarding seafaring men that talk of these sea monsters that caused the sea to boil. Isn't that amazing? He maketh a path to shine after him as one would think the deep to be hoary. Upon earth there is not his like who is made without fear. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. God's doing all of this to show His might and His splendor to Job. He said, have you seen Behemoth? Have you seen Leviathan? And you're questioning the Almighty? I'm the one that made these things. And Job doesn't have an answer for him. Now, scientists today would have you believe that these things went extinct, that they were not around during the time of man, that they evolved, that probably some big asteroid and big ice age came along and wiped them out. I will submit to you tonight, not only uh, did they not go extinct that way, but they lived alongside of man. There's so much proof. I gave you some last week. Uh, 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 Herodotus in, in 440 B.C. gave a first-hand experience where he says, I went once to a certain place in Arabia, almost exactly opposite the Syria of Buto, to make inquiries concerning the winged serpents. Upon my arrival, I saw the backbones and ribs of serpents in such numbers as it was impossible to describe. The winged serpent is shaped like the water snake. Its wings are not feathers, but resemble those very closely of a bat. The ribs, uh, there were a multitude of heaps, some great, some small, some mid-sized. The place where the bones lie is an entrance of a narrow gorge between steep mountains. 
which there opened upon a spacious plain, communicating with the great plain of Egypt. He then relates that in the spring, the winged snakes come flying from Arabia towards Egypt, but are met in this gorge by the birds that they call ibises, who forbid their entrance and destroy them all. Josephus, who <coughs> excuse me, is a notable historian from the time of the Lord Jesus, relates the story of a great flying fiery serpent that Moses had to kill when he first went to Ethiopia. The Babylonian god Marduk is pictured with a fire-breathing dragon at his feet. When Marco Polo went to China in the 1400s, he wrote about the emperor of China who had uh, who had stables for his dragons that he was training to pull his chariots. Why would Marco Polo write such things? I believe he probably saw them and saw what was going on there. Job 41 talks about Leviathan. Job 40 talks about uh, Behemoth. I'm going to take the rest of the time, and I'm going to let uh, Kent Hovine uh, from back in the 90s share with you some of his research and some of the research of others that he's, he points to here. Uh, that not only uh, did the dinosaurs live after the flood alongside of men for many, many years, but there's a very good possibility that in very rare, rare instances, there may still yet be some alive today in some of the very unexplored areas of the world. Uh, Not a lot of them. I don't think you have to worry about driving home tonight. Uh, But there could be a few. And uh, just something to think about. All right, Brother Keith, are we about ready back there? Are we going to be able to go, you think? Hopefully. I may have to come help you get it started. Okay. Oh, there are kids by the billions being brainwashed on this planet. And Satan is using dinosaurs to do it. Nearly all the books say millions of years ago. And then we got some Christians that totally ignore the subject because they don't have an answer. Well, study to show yourself approved unto God. Get the answer and go share it with somebody, okay? Millions of years ago, the book says. I go to museums all the time. just makes my blood boil. You see hundreds and hundreds of kids coming past these incredible displays. I mean, beautiful big dinosaur skeletons. And guess what the sign says at the bottom? Millions of years ago. See, Christians don't seem to understand this. The museums and science centers of the world, that is their church. They are preaching their gospel just like you are trying to preach your gospel. And they're using your tax dollars to preach their gospel. That's how it happens. Millions of years ago. The Bible says, Behemoth lieth under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and fens. Now, the word fens is an old English word that means the swamp. You know, the biggest swamp in the world is in the middle of Africa. It's called the Likwala Swamp. That swamp is huge. Most Americans don't appreciate the size of Africa. Here's what Africa looks like next to the entire United States. Africa is gigantic, okay? That swamp is bigger, is the same size as the state of of Florida, 55,000 square miles. That swamp is huge. Did you know that swamp is today is 80% unexplored? In 1885, Congo in Africa was taken over by Belgium, and it was called the Belgian Congo for many, many years. In 1960, the communists liberated them. <clears throat> you know, the communists liberate countries. They kill everybody. Okay, you're free now. 
Yeah, anyway. There were reports in that swamp <clears throat> from the 1700s when the missionaries went in there and said, man, there are dinosaurs still living in that swamp. Dinosaurs still alive? 1910, New York Herald ran an article about dinosaurs still living in Africa's swamps. Here's Saturday Evening Post, 1948. There could be dinosaurs still alive in Africa. A big game hunter named uh, <clears throat> Mr. Gobbler returned from a trip to Angola he announced to the Cape Town newspaper, the Cape Argus, that there was an animal of large dimensions, the description of which could only fit a dinosaur. The natives call it Chippequi. In Central African Republic, they call it Naguri. Roy Mackle went there in 1980 <coughs> on an expedition. He spent a quarter million dollars, went back again the next year, went to that swamp. He said it's the most miserable swamp on planet Earth. The mosquitoes landed on them at the rate of about 1,000 an hour constantly. I mean, like swarms of dust around you. Bloodthirsty mosquitoes. 95 degrees, 95% humidity all the time. As they traveled around the swamp, the natives talked about this animal called Mahamba. <clears throat> he said, what's that? And they showed him a crocodile. Oh yeah, that's the Mahamba right there, Mahamba. He said, how big does it get? They pasted it off on the sandbar, 50 feet long. Now, if you're a pygmy, 4 foot 4, a 50 foot crocodile looks really big to you, okay? And everybody says, no, crocodiles, they never get past about 17 feet. Oh, I don't think that's correct. Earlier in the, the summer of uh, 2005, 